Hi, this is Scott Morey with GPG Advisors, and this is part of the RE Insights podcast series. And I'm extremely excited today to have someone that I worked quite hard, actually, to get uh, to do a podcast with, with me. But Patrick Jelani, who's the CEO of MRI, and I think most everyone that's probably listening to this knows who MRI is, but if they don't, it's really one of the preeminent software solutions within the real estate marketplace, providing, I'd say, kind of the suite of products. And I know you'll talk about your strategy later and your, your partnerships as well with other people's products, but about really fulfilling, supporting the entire life cycle of an asset, so whether it was from acquisitions and dispositions all the way through to development, construction, turnover, management, asset management, reporting, and kind of the list goes on across asset classes. I believe, and it's hard to get information on this, but I know you've got almost, um, I should think slightly over 6,000 clients. I know you've got well over 1,000 employees, I believe. I know you're global. You've had some big acquisitions we're going to talk about. But uh, with that in mind, Patrick, I want to thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. It's a pleasure. Now, I believe you're a native from Pennsylvania, and I know you went to Michigan State University, which took you out. But can you talk about kind of your childhood and, and where you grew up and your sort of family structure in those early years? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I did grow up in uh, southwestern Pennsylvania in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a family of uh, 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 hard workers. And, you know, like uh, Pittsburgh is traditionally considered a, you know, blue-collar town. And my father was an electrical engineer that you know, started at uh, the, the lowest levels of, of Westinghouse, which is, you know, especially years ago, was a preeminent name uh, in, in, in manufacturing and, and electronics and electricity and so forth. And so he uh, ultimately went from, you know, engineering roles all the way into becoming a CEO of a, a large power transformer company. So you know, one of the things is, you know, growing up with a father like that that worked hard from the trenches all the way to the top gave me a a good role model, and my goals were always to do something business-related. Uh, so I went to Michigan State, and I actually ma majored in uh, materials and logistics management, which now is called supply chain. That word wasn't uh, necessarily used in the early 90s, uh, but is now supply chain management. And that really gave me an education of uh, really understanding business from, you know, from, from selling all the way to making and delivering. And Ultimately, I, I got into using uh, automated systems, uh, ultimately ERP systems, uh, to uh, kind of branch technology with my business background. So what, when, I believe you have siblings too. I'm not sure how many, but I, my, my guess is kind of from the research I did. But ignore that for a second. What, what, what made you go to Michigan State? Like how did you choose that? And then how did you choose that particular major? Now, interesting. So, uh, I am the last of five children. Uh, so, as they like to say, I'm the baby of the family, which, you know, has its uh, pros and cons. But one of the pros, I think, is that you get to learn uh, from a lot of your brothers and sisters, and uh, you you get the ups and downs from them. Uh, so, I, I saw kind of the different paths that my brothers and sister took, and uh, for me, I wanted to do something outside of Pennsylvania. So, I was I was definitely intrigued to go uh, out of state and, and get kind of a different experience. And then really outside of the kind of academic arena, I was a, a drummer in high school, a percussionist, and 
when I was in high school, I was uh, a member of the McDonald's All-American Marching Band, and uh, my drum captain at the time was from Michigan State, and uh, he was telling me about the, the great percussion program they had at Michigan State, and I went and auditioned when I was a senior, and uh, ultimately that's what uh, I would say was the, was the lead that got me to Michigan State, and then when I got there, uh, I knew I wanted to do business, and one of the programs uh, that currently ranked number one in the country was the Materials and Logistics Management Program, and I found that to be interesting, and that's the path I took. i got to ask, do you still play the drums? I, I do, but more <laughs> of a, interestingly enough, the, the last three times I played the drums were at MRI Software International Users Conferences uh, when I was coerced to go on stage uh, with our band, uh, with the band that we, <laughs> that we have there. So uh, more of a, a casual, fun, uh, kind of home recreation type drummer at this point, but uh, certainly will always be a hobby. And then coming back again with the degree that you picked, I mean, I think about I went to uh, Torero, and no one knows who a Torero is, University of San Diego. And I had this very general criteria about what I was looking for. And a lot of it was about keeping my options open and being practical and, and things actually, in my case, that my father kind of spilled in me. But again, going back to picking that particular degree, at that point in time, it was still early, right? I think as you, right, very much. was not called supply chain then, but you hit supply chain by mid to late 90s. It was really hot. But what was the criteria that made you pick that? Right. No, it's interesting. So first of all, it was getting a lot of press um, in, the, in the early 90s. Um, in Michigan State was one of the, the, the first uh, schools that, that offered the programs. And again, back to my commentary about my father, uh, my father ultimately ended up being the CEO of a large-scale manufacturing company. So most of the things I was hearing about supply chain or materials at the time, purchasing operations, transportation, distribution, essentially, and especially you know, going to school in Michigan, you heard a lot of the automotive industry, and, and essentially it was, this is about manufacturing. This is about making products. This is about uh, distributing products and, and moving material from one place to the next. And for me, that aligned uh, with you know, what my father did, essentially, and um, you know, so it became an interest to me because I saw him uh, be successful in, in that arena. And, you know, I, 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 I started uh, getting into it, and I very much liked it. I think like anyone in school, you know, the first two years you end up taking general education courses. But that, by the time I was a, a junior and I was done with all of my accounting and economics courses and general ed courses, once I got into these courses where we were learning about distribution networks and what was really the, the MRP, Materials Requirements Planning, and MRP2, which ultimately became Enterprise Resource Planning, which ultimately even today people will say companies like MRI are ERP for real estate. And although there are certainly a lot of differences in the term ERP, that concept of, of business process systems that run everything from the back room to the front room um, were the types of things I learned in college. And ultimately, my first job out of college uh, was working in a manufacturing facility in Memphis, Tennessee. And I began using a product that was owned by IBM called Mapix. And this was a, an inventory control system that was tied to the company's financial systems, that was tied to the company's record-keeping systems. And 
know, here I stand uh, 20, almost 25 years later, and ultimately, you know, what MRI does an enterprise platform for an industry vertical is just not manufacturing. Interesting. And you went, so you graduated in State. You That's end correct. up at Ernst & Young, I think, starting in 94. So can you talk about kind of what other companies you were looking at and um, how you yeah. ended up at E&Y? Ab absolutely. So like I said, I, you know, I started at a small manufacturing company, a railroad transportation manufacturing company in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and I got very involved in the use of technology to do my job, right? And so this is uh, inventory control systems, product scheduling, um, and you know financial systems tied to those systems. And I ended up uh, in in the short year and a half that I was there, I ended up being you know one of the the, the newer individuals, college grads that was uh, a little more into change and so forth. So I immediately got into the technology side, and I was so uh, into it, I guess, uh, that at the time, this is when companies like Ernst & Young and Anderson Consulting and, and Pricewaterhouse were, were ramping up for their Oracle and SAP consulting practices. So this is really the, the boom time for large-scale ERP. And so I, I got hit up by several recruiters. And in, with just less than two years of experience under my belt, I was you know, I, I jumped into the consulting arena because it gave me the opportunity to do technology aligned with business, and it allowed me to do it with a multitude of clients all over the world. And you know, so I always like to say, at a very young age, uh, I had no business being in front of some of these clients, <laughs> like many young consultants, uh, like many young consultants uh, go through. But um, you, you learn very quickly how to deal with people and learn a lot about industries and, and business processes and. It, it's probably where I point back to the most is the experience with E&Y doing, doing projects all over the globe. And then if my memory's correct, you went from um, E&Y to a company called Ubix, which was uh, another advisory, also kind of an outsourcing company for a couple of years. And, and I believe I have that correct. And then what were you doing there? Yeah, so that, that was an interesting decision because I, I loved my time at Ernst & Young and I was working out of the Detroit office and my, my wife was working for General Motors and we had just had our first child and you know everything was kind of coming into place in this, this company um, that happened to be based in Pittsburgh and remember that's where I was born and raised, um, had an opportunity to bring in an executive to start a solutions-based consulting practice in, in, a, in a company that had otherwise been more of a commodity programming outsourcing shop, uh, primarily foreign nationals coming over on H-1B visas um, and doing staff augmentation, and they needed someone to come in and start an enterprise solutions group. I was intrigued, although the, you know, when you think about some of the biggest decisions you make in your life, uh, it was a pay cut for me to move from delivery to operational management, and it was a it was a big decision because, you know, at the time I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to be on the partner track, and you know, I'm going to live this this at the time big six consulting lifestyle, and that's for me. But I made the jump into operational uh, leadership of professional services, and I absolutely loved it. It, it gave me the opportunity to truly manage a P and L, uh, to be on the inside versus just 
you know, kind of the project contracting role that, that you do in a consulting company. And, uh, you know, I quickly uh, was able to hone skills in outsourcing and third-party uh, project management and learned a ton about a variety of technologies outside of ERP, a lot of the programming and development skills that, that we offered. And I actually ran a, a large development shop that was based in Bangalore, India. So I got to travel there quite a bit. And it was really my first opportunity to oversee, you know, your traditional revenue-producing professional services firm. And you were there, I think, till 2001. Then you went to, I think, a totally different company. I was trying to do some research, research on them, but called Smart, which is actually more on the healthcare side. Of course, they have a whole, you know, if there's a theme here on the logistics side you were involved with. And, and I believe you're actually on the... A director position on the corporate IT side. Can you can you yeah, share more about that? So there was I, I did a small stint as a corporate IT director at this company in central Pennsylvania, which is actually quite large, um, basically number one producer for companies like Walmart and so forth. And I was their corporate IT director, which was their CIO. Um, I was serving them uh, at Ubix. We our consulting services were providing services there, and they needed an IT director. Uh, to take over, and this was after the uh, you know the the Y2K era was reinventing itself after uh, after that ended, and the dot com arena was uh, was beginning to come to an end. And I thought to myself, this was a stable opportunity to to wear a technology label in a in a, in a company, and I did that for. Uh, just over a year when SmartOps, a Pittsburgh-based uh, startup out of Carnegie Mellon, uh, came calling and wanted me to start their professional services organization. And for me, again, that came back to enterprise software, uh, working primarily with SAP customers, which I had you know, known very, very well, and the opportunity to grow professional services in the large-scale enterprise space. And I did that with a, a group of, of Carnegie Mellon uh, veterans that started an organization, and uh, we were quite successful. And uh, ultimately, the company is now owned by SAP. And uh, I left in 2006 after uh, a good majority of the implementation work was beginning to be done by SAP as a uh, global partner of theirs. And then ultimately, the company was, was fully acquired. So then I left in 2006, and that my friend, is when uh, Intuit Real Estate Solutions, which was the owner of MRI Software yeah. at the time, came calling to run their, call it 100-person uh, professional services organization. And that was my first uh, entrance into real estate enterprise software. Which, you know, many people say uh, real estate and technology is an oxymoron. Well, I think it's not that way anymore. <laughs> But you go, go back in a period of time, it might have been. By the way, I wanted to apologize because I did skip. You're, you're correct, and I, I had missed the uh, first quality enterprises and move over smart. Now, in talking about, I've got some sort of historical questions pre-Intuit, it, but again, just briefly on Intuit, they, they acquire MRI, I believe, in 2002. You joined in 2006 as a director of global services, as you talked about. Uh, in 2009, Vista Equity Partners then acquires out, takes out the position right of Intuit for I think it was 120 something million dollars. Uh, in 
2010, a year after that happened, you became VP of Global Services. Two years later, 2012, CLO. Two years later, again, CEO. You've got a whole pattern here, by the way. I wish my career trajectory was the same way every two years. But <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about, like, it's really interesting to me when you look at Intuit and, and that leap. And what's interesting to me is if you go back in time and I, you, know, you graduated in um, 93, Right, and you you joined them in 2006, so 13 years later, roughly, I'm guessing you were in your mid to early 30s. You were a young guy, a young person. Yep. And you had these really pretty interesting roles before that helped you get ready, I would think, right, to where you are now. And you ended up in these. It's true, right? These pretty senior, you know, service related stuff. It's really interesting. So the the questions I have are a couple. If you go back pre into it. You have logic to your career because you shared it part, partially with life work balance where I was in the same spot in, in a point in time and, and uh, had my first kid in 98 and I ended up actually director of IT for a small construction company just to not travel, right, because I was on the road so much and then sure. Anderson. But you, you have this supply chain theme, but it, you extended that in a bunch of ways on the services angle. So I'd love kind of... You know, when you're interviewing for the position for Intuit that you ultimately got, I don't know if it was Jeff Thompson or who was interviewing you for it. it was. But I, I, okay. Yeah. I'd lo- he's a great guy. I'd love to understand kind of just what was happening then, right, and about sure. how you sold yourself and how you sort of shared your experience to ultimately get that position. Absolutely. So for me, um, you know, coming into technology, uh, my having not been a programmer, right, I mean, you know, when I was in middle school and so forth, I, you know, did some uh, TR, you know, would go to TRS-80 camps and, you know, simple things like that. But, uh, you know, I was, uh, it was, uh, you know, hobbyist type of programming work that I did as a, as a little kid. So, you know, not being a, a technology purist and coming from the business side and coming from the consulting and professional services side, my view of the world really was, from the aspect of the user. And I know that, you know, that sounds uh, cliche and so stereotypical now. People say, well, it's it's what the users want. It's how the user acts. It's it's, it's how the user operates. And, you know, but there was a time when those were not the the default attributes, the people making and implementing software. Um, This was a time when software was technology, done by technologists, implemented by technologists. And, to some extent, the decisions being made by technologists. And one of the things that I was able to bring to the table is to look at it from a true user uh, perspective and what's the, the process flow, what's the workflow, what's the value, what's the, what is the deliverable that you're trying to create with this technology. So technology for me was always the tool. It was never the let's start with technology and see what we can make. It was, it was really, this is the problem and how are we going to solve it? And, and we're going to try to solve it with technology. But it was kind of a much more from the user perspective. So when I would go and, you know, whether it was at Ubix where, you know, at 27 years old, I had the opportunity to be a, an officer of a publicly traded company. Uh, the company was publicly traded at that time. And, um, you know, so I had all, all these great experiences but at the end of the day, no matter where I went, regardless of the industry vertical or, or business type that it was, this was about processes. This was about roles and value. 
and, and, and using software to make things more efficient, more productive, and, and ultimately you know, allowing companies to be more effective and ultimately make more money for their shareholders. So really that was my selling point no matter where I went. And so when I sat down with, with Jeff Thompson, who was the general manager of uh, Intuit Real Estate at the time, and um, you know, basically they were looking to take MRI to its next step. And instead of just doing uh, what was more tactical uh, implementation work, they wanted to get much more into implementation services that were more consultative with project management and change management and teams that were more than just technologists but were functional and business uh, capabilities. And at the time, you know, 2006, 2007, really before the real estate crash, that's when we implemented some of our very largest customers that we still do business with today. And, you know, these are multi-million dollar uh, projects that required significant consulting expertise versus just tactical software jockeys, if you will. And so, you know, that was the need that they were looking for at the time. They needed someone to come in and bring their people in, in different regions and, and really to march to a, a methodology. We came up with a new methodology and we began to use that framework methodology and how we scoped our projects, how we managed our projects, how we quoted our projects, and ultimately you know, how we evaluated the success of our projects. And, and to this day, some of those things that uh, we did together back in 2006 are, are still used at our company. Yeah, when, when Vista Equity Partners came in 2009, I think either as part of that or shortly thereafter, if my memory is correct, and I know you'll correct me, I think Jeff left, a gentleman named David Post came in at some point in time who ultimately, um, you didn't replace, he effectively left in the courses when you were elevated up to the CEO spot. But sure. um, talk about you know, sort of their influence, but also just on a, ignoring Jeff and David for a sec as well, just... If you've had people over your career, whether that's a period of time or for the duration, where you reach out to for advice or, you, you know, they might be mentors of yours or, you know, I have a couple and I, I won't say their names, but I refer to them as my wife as Uncle So-and-so because <laughs> they're kind of like family. And it's, you know, I go to when I'm at interesting um, points, decision points that, I, that I'm looking for advice on. But can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So in 2009, we were the last of the divisions within Intuit that were vertic vertical market-focused enterprise platforms. It was part of uh, an initiative that the uh, previous Intuit CEO uh, had put into place in the late, in the early 2000s, and really they began to divest those businesses, and we were the last one left. And in 2009, they came to us and said that, um, you know, that they were planning on divesting uh, the real estate solutions division, and we went to market, and multiple suitors came to play. Obviously, I can't share who those were, but, um, you know, from strategic buyers, competitors, all the way to, you know, financial private equity firms, and ultimately, we were acquired by a private equity firm, and it was really the first time in the, the life of the business that we were, um, you know, either we once were a family-owned business and, and then ultimately became a, a public uh, a division of a public company. So private equity brought a uh, kind of a, a new, 
a new set of uh, direction for MRI and for a company that was founded in 1971. You're talking about 40 years of, of history and tradition and legacy. And you're also talking about a company that was coming out of the real estate downturn that had um, a lot of things that it needed to fix if it was going to go 40 more years. And, and that truly was the goal. So when a private equity firm comes in, you know, their goal is to you know, how do, we, how do we take this business and re-engineer it uh, to not only make it financially successful, but make it viable for, for the future. And the things that we did um, certainly caused a lot of, I always say, broken, broken glass in the marketplace. Uh, we had a lot of turnover at the executive level. And in fact, you know, I believe in fairly short order, in less than a year, I believe I was the only executive out of that original team that was remaining with MRI. Um, and, and I guess, you know, why, why, did, why did I stay? Why did it make sense? Uh, although it was tough, I believe that the things that we were doing were right to uh, ensure that the business would have 40 more years. And yes, it required a lot of change and a lot of trepidation and concern and um, but I, I supported uh, some of the things we had to do. Would I have done some of the things differently if I was in charge? Sure, of course. Uh, but at the end of the day, the result of reinvigorating the business's financial health was, was what occurred. And so I was certainly pleased with that. So along the way, you know, I had a lot of uh, mentors and, 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 and guides that uh, kept me focused and, you know, kept me from... From I should say, kept me staying on the ship and, and handling the tough times, and that was, that's probably the biggest lesson learned, that, that uh, there's multiple ways to run a business. There's no one right way, and uh, you know, sometimes you have to do what the, the ownership team uh, is asking you to do uh, if you're going to ever get to the, some of the things that you want to do personally and professionally, and so that's kind of the story there. So let's now talk, kind of bring us up to the current times and kind of what's going on. And I think you look, you know, over the last five, six years, you, you have defined, you're going to talk about, I'm sure, in more detail, define a very clear um, different market differentiating strategy relative to your solution set and then how you offer those to the customer base. You have, as a company, done that organically. You've done that through... You know, acquisitions, big and small. I mean, I go back and thinking in 2011, I believe you acquired WorkSpeed. There's a bunch in between that. 15 was Cougar, 2016 CallMax, 2017 Resident Check, and then a series of ones recently. One of the ones that was at least notable and pretty exciting to me was your acquisition of Cube and their position in the U.S., not just, I'm sorry, in Europe. Uh, but also an aspect of the U.S. on the, on the corporate side and, and globally. So um, I'd love to understand today sort of how you position the broader software sort of landscape within real estate. And again, I think sharing your vision and strategy and market positioning today and, and what your plans are kind of the next couple of years. Sure. No, happy to. It's a, uh, it's a real pride point when I look back at uh, what the team has accomplished over the last few years especially, and I always say that you know, for a company that's been around for 46 years, um, you know, starting as a services bureau, Management Reports, Inc., uh, we've had to 
appropriately reinvent ourselves um, in changing markets, in changing technologies, in changing times, in changing ownership. And so uh, to do that, I think one of the fundamental elements uh, at our core is, you know, what is our culture as, as an organization that, that, that is made up of, of, you know, highly passionate individuals? And so I would tell you that regardless of what we bought and when we bought it, uh, one of the things that has reinvigorated this business immensely is us going back to our roots of believing in, 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 in the, the, the trust and the integrity and the relationship of our people. And so, you know, as you walk through our offices, uh, it's more of an internal thing, but you walk through our offices and we have pictures of lions everywhere. And these lions really represent the fact that, you know, we believe we were the founders of this industry back in 1971. And, and we believe that we have a responsibility to that legacy. And so, you know, under, you know, having the opportunity to be the COO and then CEO beginning in 2014, the first thing that we did together was to reinvigorate uh, our belief in ourselves and to go to market with the concept of one simple tradition, and that is listening to what our clients actually wanted. And in doing so, we actually pivoted a bit to a situation where uh, we took a platform that always was very flexible, uh, but then we took an approach that said, how can we open this platform up uh, more in the likes of a Salesforce.com versus an SAP? So. We, we very much wanted to look at our platform as something that could be something for everyone, right? Whether it was something that we created, something that we partnered with, or something that we bought. And so when you look at the companies that we've acquired over the last few years, and especially in, in late 2017, our whole strategy has been to not just buy businesses or build products, but to try to bring these products as businesses into an ecosystem that creates choice and flexibility. And so that mantra is the single biggest differentiator of how we go about business compared to some of our competitors. Now you asked about acquisitions. Uh, we've made acquisitions from you know, people of uh, you know, five, five resources all the way up to 350 resources. You know, as it stands today, uh, we are the largest uh, commercial real estate technology company in the United Kingdom with almost 400 employees uh, on, that, on, that, uh, on that continent now, and we're going to continue to grow and evolve. We've bought investment solution businesses, Cougar and Integratech, now part of the MRI investment solution suite. Uh, we've heavily invested in the residential sector with screening companies, resident check, with call automation companies, CallMax. And again, the idea is not just to buy disparate companies, but to take these companies and to incorporate them into a unified ecosystem that we're calling the single experience, right? Multiple platforms, multiple solutions, but one put together with a look and feel and a data integration and the reporting capabilities that allow you to leverage the power of multiple solutions across the need. You said, I know you came and met with myself and a group of people last year, and you, you said something that really stuck with me, actually you showed it, which was using the iPhone as an example with the Apple, and, yes. and imagine if on your iPhone all you had was Apple apps, which means, you know, I had like five apps on my phone, and about, 
how none of us anymore really think about where those apps are coming from or not. They all sort of find a way, and not without a lot of work behind it, but find a way to work together. And I thought that was a really uh, concise and kind of articulate way to share in a way, I think, what you view, you know, your strategy not just being, you've said this before to me, but I've seen on interviews on data level integration, but experience being equally important. And it, it goes back to your comments earlier about having a customer view of the world, right? A absolutely. And we have so many, you know, so many people can say, well, you know, we have partners too. We have data integration too. And it's, it's actually so much more than that. This is, this is about creating, and, you know, the CIOs out there may laugh because we've been saying, CIOs have been trying to say this for 20 years, but can you create plug-and-play at the enterprise software level? And the reality is in 2018, the answer is finally yes. And, you know, that, that is the play that is uh, our future. So and it's interesting, too, because both, again, organically and then through their strategic acquisitions is about deepening the functionality by asset class and then you'd say, I'd say sub-asset class, like the, especially multifamily because there's, sure. there's so many variations of it. But also geographically, and I had read something, I think, and it's an old stat, which I'm going to ask it actually is, I saw a statistic maybe in six, 2016 that roughly 25% of your business was outside of North America. And obviously that number is much bigger now. I don't know if you, you know what it is or can share what it is, but I wanted to ask. Yeah, so as it stands, uh, we have about well over 6,500 clients, uh, almost 1,400 uh, resources uh, across the globe. We are on every on every major continent doing business in, in well over 80 different countries um, as it relates to kind of the makeup and, and revenue of our business now, I would say that it's, um, it's much closer to the you know, 40% of our business being done outside of the United States. And that's, that's a number that we take a lot of pride in, especially as we continue to grow at double digits uh, organically in the United States. So it would be less impressive if we were stagnant uh, in the market that we were founded in. But as we continue to grow at double digits in North America, uh, we're also seeing immense growth through acquisition overseas as well. So it's a perfect combination. And you know, we've seen over the last four years historic growth of our business. And again, both organic and inorganic. So if you were going to pick one thing about, and I didn't give you this in advance, this question, but I know you don't have the answer, but if you said one thing that you needed to overcome in a company or focus at or be better at, what, what do you think that is? Well, it's interesting. So it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to pick that one thing, but I'm, I'm going to give you, I, I'm, I'm probably uh, infamously known uh, for some bad analogies, but I am a man of analogies, so I'll, I'll share with you one. <laughs> so when you're, when you're around for 40 plus years, uh, it, is, it is very much like the Buick commercial, right, that says, you know, this is not your grandfather's Buick. And, it's, and, and the biggest thing we've had to overcome is that uh, when you go through ebbs and flows and, and, and highs and lows and different ownerships and different leaderships and so forth, uh, it's very easy for a brand that's been around for 40 years to get labeled as the has-been, uh, the, 
the old Buick, right? The the let's call it the '67 Chevy, right? Rugged and tough and 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 reliable. But geez, you pull up that that red shiny sports car next to it, and who's going to want it? And so we really had to overcome some of the, I think, perceptions in the industry. Uh, some of them real, some of them simply perceived um, and and uh, kind of marketed uh, appropriately by our competitors. And so the, the, the very first thing we had to do is to reinvent uh, the fact that innovation was at the forefront of, of how we look at things. And, you know, we had taken, there were some years where MRI probably rested on its laurels. And, you know, companies that have been around for that many years sometimes go through periods of time like that. And so the reinvigoration of innovation, the reinvigoration of belief that, you know, our platforms and our people and our customers and what we were going to do was was going to be better ahead was the number one thing we had to change. And we did that not only internally, but then we went um, to the other major component of our go-to-market strategy, and that is the ecosystem. And so, you know, as it stands today, we have over 125 uh, formal partners. And these are more than just services partners. These are product partners that invest in making MRI um, an integrated part of their users' experiences. And so we began to create, uh, I call it the, the army of MRI ambassadors uh, that help to spread the word that uh, the innovative MRI business that was once the lion of the industry uh, is back and you know, the future is bright. Well, I'm not sure if you're aware or not. We we finally became a proud service partner of yours, I think, last Friday. Yes, <laughs> I am. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't want to be presumptuous and announce that yeah. on here, but uh, yes, I was, uh, I was very, very pleased to see that. And obviously, you know, we've done... Um, you know, we've, we've had relationships and, and accounts with, with GPG advisors for, for several years. And to, uh, to get you formally into the program um, was another uh, sign of, uh, you know, not only appreciation for the relationship we've had, but another indication that, that others are looking at us as a, as a player in the market that is a force to be reckoned with. No, we're, we're excited. So I, I know we're running a little bit long. I've got a couple more questions. Um, one of which I know you had a new capital partner come in in 15 GI Partners together, I believe, with TA Associates. And funny enough, you probably already know this. GI Partners has an investment in CenterPoint, which I think if you haven't already, you should talk to GI Partners about getting in there. But um, uh, anyway, what, was, what, what led to that? Was that added to the capital stack, or was it a replacement, or what, what drove that change? Well, so a couple of things. In, in, uh, in 2014, I became CEO, and we were still uh, owned by Vista. And, and, and so another full year under Vista uh, before GI came in, um, it would have been year five of, of ownership from Vista. And the business had outgrown uh, what Vista had brought to the table, right? So we had taken a company that had very little growth and, and quite honestly, was uh, was was very low from a profitability perspective of, as well, and Vista turned it into a much more productive and and uh, financially sound business. But um, during those times, growth 
net new business and innovation were not uh, the attributes that were aligned with our brand. So as, uh, as GI partners came in, very large scale real estate investors, both uh, you know, asset owners and managers, as well as the typical uh, private equity uh, ownership of, of, of technology companies as well, they have both sides of the house. We were a perfect example for GI to not only represent their real estate prowess, but represent their growing uh, portfolio of technology companies. And they put money into the business and allowed us to not only acquire businesses, which we certainly had done in the past, but their model, along with our growth, allowed us to buy businesses and maintain and grow those businesses. So as it stands today, if you look at some of the brands we bought several years back in the 2011 and 12, we mostly shuttered the offices uh, of the acquired businesses and, and, and moved them into Cleveland. And we did some good things with the products, but those businesses were not brought in as catalysts for growth. They were primarily brought in for um, uh, you know, the replacement of, of revenue and profitability. Um, whereas, as you look at the acquisition of Cougar and, and, and Integratech and Calmax and Cube and Tenmast and Hab and Econdo, all of these businesses were acquired to grow and are additive, and the offices are now MRI offices and MRI-branded locations. So we've expanded our footprint, we've expanded our solutions, and we've put money in them to grow them. And, and so when, when GI uh, had owned us for... Uh, just about a year and a half when, when TA Associates came to the table and made a significant financial investment in us. And that's what's allowed us to scale into the public housing business and, and, and much, much larger in the UK and the, the European markets. And they've invested in our business for growth. So no longer are we a business that's, that's going to be, you know, uh, passive and, and kind of rest on our laurels, we are going to aggressively grow organically and inorganically across the globe in all markets, commercial, residential, the investment space, and then all subclasses of real estate as well. One last question, actually, which I know you've got a couple sons and I've got four kids, but I want to go back now. You know, you're um, picking out a lot, I guess, roughly about 25 years right into your post-Michigan State career, and if you went back, even probably when you were in high school and you were able to talk to yourself then, some kind of parallel universe, what, what advice would you give yourself now to your younger you know, version? It's, it's interesting. I, I, I know it's kind of cheesy. I find myself when I'm talking to some of our newer employees, employees and certainly you know, there's lots of conversation in books around the millennium generation, millennial generation and so forth. And, and, I, and I go back to some simple basics that I didn't realize at first and that I, I am now um, telling, telling folks, which is first and foremost, um, you know, try to do your job better than everybody else. Be a star at what you do. Uh, I think too many, too many times myself and others, you, know, you, you, you go into every task, a job, and, and, and it's, you're always looking to the, the, the next role, the next move, the next how do I get here. Uh, not, enough, not enough time, especially in this generation, people are, are saying, let me be a star at what I'm doing, and then opportunities will arise. And I think if, if I'd have learned that faster, 
I'd have, I'd have certainly had uh, far less trepidation along the way. Uh, so that, that's one thing is, you know, there's, there's no easy path, right? Skip, skipping your way to the top is not viable. And although you might find an example here and there, um, that, is, that is not a viable uh, option. So kind of enjoy the ride. Um, and, then, and then number two, listen, right? And the, you know, no matter uh, what point I've been in my life, I, I, I try to reflect on, man, if I, if I could have just listened long enough to realize I didn't have all the answers and it's okay to make mistakes. And uh, I think too often you think you have all the answers and, and you, you know, you're smarter than someone else. And the, the fact is, is that's not the case. And, and so the more you listen, the better decisions you make. And executives are paid to make decisions. So the more I've listened, I think the better I've become. No, I think that's, that's great advice. Well, Patrick, I thank, thank you enough for the podcast and the last hour where we've talked. I think it's been great. I wanted to thank GPG Advisors for sponsoring this. And I wish you the continued success in your career and with MRI and look forward to our paths crossing again. Thanks again. Well, thank you very much, Scott. I, I appreciate it and I look forward to seeing you soon.